Hello and welcome to episode 211 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Happy Wednesday to you, Ian. Happy Wednesday to you, Jason, and happy Volcano Day. Oh no, not again. Where is it this time? What is it doing? What flight is it impacting? <laughs> How can I see it in the app? Where can't flights fly? Is it coming here? Give me all of the details. Is it Iceland again? Because we won't tolerate that anymore from them. It's not Iceland. Oh, okay. But it looks like it's about to start affecting Trans-Pacific flight. So this is this is the Shavuch volcano in in Russia on the Kamchatka Peninsula, the one that erupts and I don't want to say frequent basis, but has erupted and has been cause for concern before. It's a cranky volcano. But this time it's erupting and the ash cloud is in fact impacting flights. It it hasn't halted trans-Pacific traffic by any stretch of the imagination. So this is an interesting situation where natural processes and geopolitics are getting in the way of aviation or, or impacting aviation in a major way. Because the volcano is located on the Kamchatka Peninsula, and if the eruption goes east, it impacts more flights than if it had, you know, if the the winds had carried it west. But the prevailing winds are carrying it east. It's hitting the jet stream, so it's starting to impact a lot of flights. I know we were talking before we started recording. We were looking at some of the routes that would go directly through there, and and it's kind of an interesting breakdown between which aircraft are able to kind of route around the issue at the moment, and which are having to either make fuel stops or seeing flights canceled. I know we were talking or go about right over it, or go right over it. Yeah, as the case may be, as the ash cloud hasn't quite reached all the flight levels yet. If you're interested, you can take a look at where the ash cloud is and where it's going to be as forecasted by the Volcanic Ash Advisory Centers over the next 6, 12, and 18 hours. So we've got those polygons plotted on the map. If you go into the the weather section of the app, you can tap volcanic eruption and then that'll appear and you can you can tap the volcano logo where the volcano is and you'll see where the the ash cloud is is the both where it is and is where it is predicted to be this could get worse if the ash hits the jet stream in any way shape or form to where it really impacts flight routes because the trans-Pacific flights, just as the transatlantic flights do, they really take care to fly inside the jet stream as much as possible on the eastbound to both save fuel and time and then fly outside of it for the westbound to not have headwinds. But like I mentioned before, the big thing here is that None of this would be an issue if Russian airspace was still available to 99% of these flights. So flights that are operated by basically Chinese airlines at this point from North America to either elsewhere in Asia, mainly just China or, or Hong Kong, you have those flights using their ability to operate through Russian airspace to just go around. But- 99% of flights that are not able to transit Russian airspace now can't do that. And so they're having to either move their flights to make a technical stop elsewhere and then fly very south or just fly over it for the time being. 
Yeah, at least from the e- U.S. East Coast, a lot of the or most of the flights, if they're able to, are taking a more southerly route. And there's an interesting look at, at a pair of flights from United out of Newark. One of the flights goes to Narita, the other goes to Haneda, basically the same place. One of them is operated by a triple seven two hundred, the other by a seven eight seven nine. The seven eight seven nine can take that southerly route and add more than like two and a half hours to flight time, but still make it nonstop. But the triple seven, unfortunately, just doesn't have the legs and has to make a, a tech stop in San Francisco today. And I wouldn't be shocked to see that uh, continue at least for the near term or, or for additional flights if the ash cloud continues rising up into the jet stream. And that's certainly what the the forecast looks like it's going to be doing in the near term. The eruption's ongoing. There's observed ash up to flight level 380. So that's definitely within the- 380 or 280? 380. Oh, that's much No, the, the forecast. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the forecast yeah. Is, is moving things up to 380. So over the next six, 12 hours. So by Friday, this could be a much bigger story than we are making it. So we wanted to talk about it today so that we could say that we talked about it and you find people when you're listening to the podcast on Friday when it comes out are already well informed. Excellent service we're providing. We do try our best most of the time. Moving on from there, because there's not really much more to say, we'll hopefully not have more to say about this next week. Hopefully the eruption calms down. Hopefully the ash dissipates and hopefully flights aren't majorly affected. If we're talking about this next week still, it's we got probably a problem. Rather, a rather unfortunate situation. In news that is probably surprising to no one, Aeroflot has sent an aircraft to Iran for maintenance. This is one of the first things that we discussed as it relates to civil aviation after Russia invaded Ukraine. The biggest issue that the airlines were going to face was how do they maintain their aircraft? What do they do when they can no longer cannibalize their own aircraft for easy repairs and spare parts? What happens when these aircraft need heavy maintenance, C-checks, D-checks? What then? Well, we've gotten our first clue. Aeroflot sent an A330-300 to Tehran for maintenance. They've contracted Mahan Air to carry out the maintenance. This is A330-300 registration, RA, new registration, RA-77700. It's the former or really still because the registration technically hasn't been canceled, VQBBS. And so it's in Tehran uh, since the beginning of April now for heavy maintenance on the landing gear. Mahan operates a collection of A340-300 and A340-600s. Iran Air operates A330-200s. They picked up a pair in that very brief window. Brief, yeah, a brief interregnum in between sanctions when they could order and take delivery of brand new Airbus aircraft and they took advantage of, of that while they could. And now they're back under sanctions. So Iran has a long history of being able to service aircraft. I don't know if it's surreptitiously because they kind of do it out in the open, but they definitely have the ability to bust through the sanctions. This is all just about Iran having the experience in keeping these Airbus aircrafts alive despite sanctions. Russia is obviously quite new to this, 
So I understand this move. They're taking the aircraft to someone who they know in this exact set of circumstances has been able to more or less keep its aircraft flying despite all of the odds working against them. Maybe Mahan Air almost certainly really has has the means to acquire the parts they need to keep this A330-300 alive and well and flying. I guess in this case, it's an A330 as opposed to an A340 from Mahan Air. But this was an, an inevitable move. Where else are they going to take these aircraft to? Maybe Venezuela, possibly? That no, Venezuela takes, Venezuela takes their aircraft to Iran. Okay, so there you go. Uh, Mahan does the heavy maintenance on Conviasa's so A340. Iran is the world's one-stop shop for all your sanctioned, busting aircraft part needs. And makes sense. I don't think anyone didn't see this coming, but it also cements the fact once and for all that these aircraft will never fly for a Western airline ever again. If they're even allowed into Western airspace ever again, I think is still a valid question. These aircraft, when they were operating within Russia for that interim period in the beginning, yeah, questionable. Maybe there were some paperwork and legality issues, but now they're actually doing possibly heavy maintenance on these aircraft in Iran. I can't see these aircraft operating in the West again, yet at the same time, Iran Air does it. They fly to cities in Germany. So I'm very unclear about how that works, actually. Just another thing that's adding to the long list of questions about what happens after the war. And unfortunately, I don't really think we're, we're close to answering any of those questions Unfortunately at this point. not, no. Keeping in line with, with a similar theme, Airbridge Cargo, which has basically paused all operations because it was a majority Boeing 747 operator and a big one at that, not having the ability to really fly anywhere and not really needing a whole lot of domestic 747 freighter capacity internally. They just closed up shop. But now they're reopening shop and this this one I did not expect. No, I did not I, see this one coming. Not only did I not know that Airbridge Cargo had had suspended all operations, even though they possess a, a good chunk of the world's entire 747-8 fleet, I did not know that there were IL-96 freighters in existence. But apparently, Airbridge Cargo is going to wake up out of its year-long slumber and operate alone, probably nearly 30-year-old Soviet-era freighter. So that's fun. I saw a tweet a few weeks ago of an IL-96 freighter with no no vertical stabilizer coming out of paint. And I was like, huh, I had did they just convert that? So I, I went and I looked up photos in the Jet Photos catalog. And sure enough, there's old, you know, early 90s, you know, IL-96 freighters. And then when you look closely, here's the thing I don't understand. The cargo door is so close in front of the wing. I would love to see how they actually load this thing. Carefully. Very, very carefully. Like I really don't understand how they can safely load cargo into this aircraft using that cargo door because it is so close to the wing. And when you mount the engines on these pictures don't it doesn't have engines mounted on it because uh, it just came out of the paint shop. How does that even work? I really want to see. Do you happen to know if these were purpose-built freighters or were they passenger-converted aircraft? I, I, I don't know. I, I really have no knowledge on a freighter version of this aircraft. It's just you know fascinating. what? I, I don't know. 
That's a good question and one that I'm going to have to look up because yeah, I'm there's like no information out there. This is the IL96T variant, the, the freighter version, but the, there's just like barely anything out there because very few of frames were ever produced of this particular variant of an already somewhat rare aircraft. So yeah, I don't know. I'm looking at the images right now and I'm seeing a few windows where the exit doors are, but not any other like I'm I'm looking for the like window plugs like the telltale sign of conversion and I'm not seeing those so I think these are purpose built freighters interesting yeah I'm looking at the interior now this looks like a purpose oh I, I see what you mean now too I'm looking at uh, or attempting to look at one of these pictures huh. <laughs> yeah that freight door is 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 curiously close to the wing box and the engines there. We'll put a link in the show notes so that in classic Russian aircraft serialization, the aircraft that we're looking at, and we'll put a link to the tweet that shows the Airbridge Cargo new livery, but also kind of the historical Polette flight livery and, and the interior picks. This is serial number 9769320103. Oh, of course. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at uh, <laughs> 9769320101 right now. Ooh. Operating for Polette Airlines uh, yes. in, in 2009. And yeah, that door is uh, why would they design this aircraft like that if it's a purpose built freighter? I don't know. Could explain why it wasn't very popular. Well, there's that. So anyway, look for those domestically in Russia soon ish, or, I guess. Or Iran. Maybe, yeah. Maybe there you go. Sticking with kind of Russia and the invasion of Ukraine, this happened late last week. It was in the newsletter last week. If you get our weekly newsletter, if you don't, you should sign up and we'll put a link in the show notes because I'm all about cross promotion today. In any case, the former director of Antonov in Ukraine has been charged basically with part of it is negligence because he forgot to or just didn't renew the insurance policy on the Antonov 225, but is also being charged on the basis of the fact that the Antonov AN-225 was technically airworthy and could have been flown to Leipzig in Germany before the invasion. There were plans to do it. They could have done it, but this guy didn't sign off and so it didn't happen. And so now he's been charged by Ukrainian prosecutors with being a jerk, but mm-hmm. there are legal implications in this particular case. But basically, failure, dereliction of duty, and causing losses based on the fact that he didn't renew the insurance policy, they didn't get reimbursed for the aircraft. Yeah, not renewing the insurance policy. That's not great, but we have to remember that at the same time, this was not the only aircraft unexpectedly stranded in country. I mean, we just talked last week about a 737 that just now made it out of the country. There are still more from other airlines. What, what was it? Wizz Air still has a few aircraft there. Wizz so Air this, still has a three, I believe. Three, three of them? So yeah, this is not a unique scenario here. Other airlines were still operating right up to the red line and, and they made the wrong call and those aircraft are still there. They may never come home. Unfortunately, in this case, it's the AN-225, the one and only. It no longer exists. It was destroyed, but it was not the only aircraft that was unfortunately there and stuck there, but it, it sure was a, a target, unfortunately. It was a target and it was destroyed and it didn't need to be that way. No, nope. unfortunate. Couldn't they have taken one of the Wizz Air 
three twenties. <laughs> one of the three twenties. There's three. Take all three. We don't need them. We take all three. Give us back the two two five. If only it worked like that. Mm-hmm. Speaking of A three twenties, it is Q one. Order and delivery season. Both Airbus and Boeing have reported their deliveries for the first quarter of 2023. And for the first time in a while, Airbus delivered fewer aircraft than Boeing over the period of a quarter. Wow. Good for them. Not by a ton, but still fewer. So Airbus delivered 127 total aircraft in Q1. Boeing delivered 130. So not a huge spread, but still important enough to mention. Significant. Yeah. Airbus had a, a truly terrible quarter uh, to somehow yes. decrease its deliveries quite sizably from uh, the first quarter of 2022 when everyone was grappling with all sorts of supply chain issues from A to Z. And then somehow to be able to deliver fewer aircraft this first quarter in 2023, that's kind of mind-boggling a little bit. But here we are. So Airbus managed to deliver 10 A22300s, two A319neos, I I guess. To uh, Tibet Airlines. Ah, that's fun. 45 A320neos, 59 321neos, Seoul A33200MRTT, that's the uh, multi-role tanker transport thingy, 5 A33900neos. That's the MRTTT. Yes. Only five A350s. Only five. five. That is really not great for Airbus. But meanwhile, on the Boeing side, 113 737s. One final forever. The last 747 was delivered. Sad. We'll never see a one or anything next to that number except a zero again. One 767, four 777s, and 11 787s. Despite all the odds of all the issues Boeing has had recently with the 78, they managed to deliver 11 this quarter. Not terrible. Yeah. And the numbers would have been higher had. 767 deliveries not have been paused. So those were the commercial numbers, by the way, for Boeing. So Airbus and, and Boeing kind of split things up differently. Airbus includes in its commercial deliveries the A330 MRTT because they deliver an A330-200 frame from Airbus commercial and they deliver it to Airbus Defense and Space, where it is then converted into the MRTT. Boeing purpose builds the KC-46s separately from the 767 freighters, and so they're reported differently. But both the 767 freighter and the KC-46 variant, deliveries of both were both paused partially during Q1 because there were additional quality issues. Those have been resolved and deliveries of the 767 are once again proceeding. So Boeing at this point, pretty much firing on all cylinders. Yeah. Uh- First time that's happened in quite a while. Good luck to them. I hope yeah. they can keep this up because it seems like anytime they hit a stride, something happens and, and I, one I of their lines not. goes down. I hope don't, don't, don't say things like that. I mean, past history has really repeated itself quite a number of times recently with Boeing. But let's hope they've figured it all out. They have accounted for all of their screwdrivers. Nothing is left behind in any of these aircraft. And they can start pumping out the 737s and 78s and maybe even one day a 777X. Maybe. Maybe. Not today. Not tomorrow. One day. (laughs) So let's, let's flip it over to the orders. 
So last week we mentioned while we were recording, French President Emmanuel Macron was en route to China. We thought there might be a big aircraft order. That turned out to not really be the case. It was more a recommitment of existing orders and reaffirmation of existing business. But the one big bit of news that really came out of the visit was that Airbus will open a second final assembly line at its Tianjin final assembly area. So that will give them two lines for the A320neo family in Tianjin, which will help them get to a rate. I still can't believe that they're going to be producing this many aircraft a month. Hopefully, by 2026, 75 A320neo family aircraft per month. Yeah. And that line in Tianjin, that's a doubling, I think, from 12 to 24 aircraft per month. If I'm plucking that off the top of my mind, but I think that's correct. That's a lot of aircraft for the Chinese market and I guess the Asia market as a whole, but it really quashed any rumors and speculation that Airbus was possibly going to open up a final assembly line in India. That seems just exponentially unlikely at this point. It just makes so much more sense to double down on a facility they already have up and running for a long time now. I guess we'll probably never see at this point wide bodies produced in the Tianjin facility. It's just going to remain They have the the A350 finishing but not final assembly. Not line. final assembly. It, yeah. It's like yeah, the I mean, getting out for assembly line where you go out and you right, put the seats right. on board and you put the paint on. Maybe not the paint, but like all, all of the interior fittings can happen there. But that's an interesting one. 75 aircraft a month. But it seems like every time Airbus or Boeing gets up to one of these theoretical numbers of we're going to produce X number of fantastical rate of these aircraft, something happens and they just don't reach it. But maybe this time, maybe 75 can can actually happen. We shall see. Elsewhere on the Airbus order front, Airbus made uh, sales of four A350 freighters to an undisclosed customer. That's nice. So congratulations, Jason. I assume it was you. Yes. I will be landing them and storing them at JFK. Yes, definitely. (laughs) I hate these announcements. We should make a rule to never talk about undisclosed orders. Okay. I don't like it. Disclose yourself. Tell us who you are. Fair enough. So this is a very, very, very disclosed order. This is Icelandair's big announcement that is, well, not surprising at all. There's not really any other option for the airline at this point. Boeing has seen to it to make sure that there was no option in this particular market. They have ordered 13 firm and 12 options for the A321 XLR, and the airline will also try and lease, I don't see why they wouldn't be able to, four A321 LRs in the meantime as it begins replacing its 757 fleet. Aww. This still leaves the 767 in need of replacement. So that'll be interesting to see what Icelandair does eventually on that front. They need more capacity and they need to replace the size of the 767. How they do that, that will be an interesting question. Nobody knows yet. But this answers the 757 question. Yeah. And these XLRs, they are way off in the future. I think they said they're going to start taking delivery in 2029. So yeah, (laughs) I guess the 73 Maxes and 75s will be around in Icelandair's fleet for still quite some time because 2029 is just when I think when they start taking delivery of these aircraft. So they are planning way out in advance, seemingly. I mean, good for them. 
Yeah. I mean, the delivery slots of the 320 family are hard to come by. That's a good point. Yeah. Better get your orders in now. I mean, they could probably move them up a bit if they really wanted to. But yeah, I mean, if the 757s are going to be around for that long, good for them. But it'll be interesting to see what happens when Boeing eventually does announce whatever the next new aircraft is they start building in the next decade. It won't be before 2029. So even though this seems like it's so far away, 2029, at that point, Boeing likely still wouldn't have even announced. Maybe they will have announced their intent to start publicly announcing an aircraft, but they will still probably be years away from a competitor to the 321XLR. Wow. Haven't really thought about it like that before, that even though this is so far out, Boeing will still have nothing to show. It'll be a while. They think it's the right call. Who am I to judge? But wow. (laughs) I'm going to leave that there. I'm going to leave it there. So last week, we talked about Go First and their A320neo fleet and how some of the aircraft are facing a repossession threat because they've basically stopped lease payments on them because most of the aircraft are in fact grounded because of the Pratt & Whitney gear turbofan engines. Prior to that, we've talked about Air Baltic and how they're wet leasing aircraft from a variety of sources for this summer season because they too are having issues with their Pratt & Whitney geared turbofan engines. So Air Baltic this week said that they have been waiting 386 days for A220 engine repairs. That's a lot of days. That's a minute. And so Flight Global looked into just how many GTF-powered aircraft are stored. 147 A320neo family aircraft powered by the GTFs are in storage. And that breaks down to 101 A320neos and 46 A321neos, or about 12% of the entire A320 family GTF fleet. The A320neo family jets powered by the CFM Leap engines, 4% grounded. Wow. So a pretty big difference. A220 fleets are also affected. 14% of the 250 A220s already delivered are currently parked. So three dozen aircraft on the A220 side and almost 150 on the A320 Neo side. So not great. A third of Air Baltic's fleet, Air Tanzania has three of four A220s in storage, and Egypt Air has seven of 12 A220s. Wow. Something's got to give here. This can't continue like this forever. I'm sure they have their best and brightest, smartest working on this around the clock, but this seems like an issue that just will not go away. So to be clear, a big part of this is not just the fact that the engines are an issue, though that is a big part of it. A big part of it is also the fact that there aren't enough parts, the supply chain is stretched incredibly thin, and there aren't enough qualified people to actually make the repairs. So we're still in that perfect storm of technical problem needs a technical solution. The technical solution needs to come from people. There aren't enough people to provide necessarily the precise technical solution that is needed. And then you need to source parts and then you need to install the parts. And there's a funnel at every single one of those that's holding this back. And it's just really all shining a spotlight on how bad the supply chain has gotten 
and continues to be. I mean, things are improving, but it's still bad out there. Yeah, not great. I would love to actually, maybe we can contact Gavin for this. He's our resident numbers person, but maybe he can put together some numbers on like, how is this compared to the new engine technologies of the past, where they're really this level of prolonged issues with aircraft offline for years at a time? I don't think so. I mean, we all know of the issues the original Pratt & Whitney engines had on the 747, but Joe Sutter kind of saw to that 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 would be resolved before the aircraft entered into service. But this just seems kind of crazy at this point. Yeah. I mean, one has to wonder how much of this is supply chain and maintenance personnel issues and how much of it is, in fact, the engines. I mean, it all we'll goes find out eventually. Mix, but, yeah, well, but what time will the tell. breakdown there? Yeah, time will tell. Let's do some route announcements. We'll do some follow-up from some stories we did last week, and then we'll call it an episode. So, Jason, I know you don't like to talk about things before they have actually happened, but in this case, it kind of leans into the conversation about how terrible this will be if, in fact, it goes off as it's planned. We talked about this a few weeks ago. JetBlue secured slots for Amsterdam that I think they themselves at the time quoted as not commercially viable, I think was the phrase. Commercially questionable, I think they said. Commercially questionable. Well, they've announced the tickets, but as you noted, you can't book the flight yet. No. Well, they put out a very nice press release saying, hey, we're going to fly New York to Amsterdam late this summer and also probably Boston later. But you know what's really helpful to book flights is, uh, well, first of all, the availability to book the flights. And second of all, potential schedule, knowing when the mm. flight operates. Interesting. The fares Interesting. for a route. I would like to know how much I have to pay for this flight. That would be good. Tell me more. Tell me more. Uh, yeah. We know the <laughs> aircraft. JetBlue will use an A321LR. That's nice. But beyond that, we know absolutely nothing. So we don't know when we can book the flight. We don't know when the flight will operate. We don't know how much a flight will cost. Excellent. People are speculating that this is kind of bluffing that they're going to announce they're going to do it, but they're not really going to do it, but they're going to announce it because they've been backed into a corner. They've been given these slots and they have to do something, maybe. But maybe we'll see by late summer, they change their mind and don't actually operate a commercially questionable flight that leaves at 1.40 a.m. or something like that to Amsterdam. <laughs> I don't really understand this one. It doesn't seem like Amsterdam is the kind of route that has bottomless pit of demand like London does. It's not Paris. It's not Paris. It's not London. But I do understand wanting to break up the duopoly of basically KLM Delta owning the New York to Amsterdam route. But man, give us something. Give us a date that the flight might operate or potential fares. I don't know. Anything. Or come back. Don't leave us alone. Or just be done with it. So last week, we talked about a court ruling issued in the Netherlands against Schiphol Airport and the Dutch government saying that they hadn't followed the proper procedures to announce flight cuts at Schiphol. This was a lawsuit filed by a number of airlines led by KLM that said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've got great planes, the best planes. We've got sustainable aviation fuel coming out of our ears. These planes have brand new engines. We can totally meet all of these climate goals that the government has set without cutting the number of flights. And the judge said, okay, yeah, that's a solid argument. You can't cut the number of flights because you didn't follow the proper procedures before announcing the cuts. 
the government has now said, yeah, we're going to appeal that because they say the proper procedures for all of these cuts would take until 2026 to go through. And we don't have that kind of time. Only Boeing has that kind of time to think about what it's going to do in the future. I mean, yeah. So Mark Harders, who's the Minister for Infrastructure and Water, has said that they're going to appeal against this ruling and take it to a higher court. So we'll see back and forth how far this goes. My familiarity with the Dutch judicial process is thankfully very limited. So I'm going to do a little bit more research into how this case could go because it does have some pretty big impacts if in fact a court says no airlines the cuts are going to happen that's tens of thousands of flights going away per year at Schiphol airport yeah definitely okay with what i talked about last week about not having confidence of booking a flight through amsterdam anytime soon because it is just very unknown what the future is of that klm super hub right now i don't want to mess with it yeah, I don't think there's really anything more to think of at this moment. I'm not sure how long the process will take. They haven't appealed yet. They've just said they're going to. So we'll see what happens in the next round of the judicial process. Last week, we also mentioned Port Air Vanuatu. They have a 737 that is broken and as part of the supply chain issues and them being very remotely located, far away from any easy-to-reach MRO, they were forced to cancel a bunch of flights, losing well over a million dollars. To that end, they have now leased a 737-800 from Air Nauru, and they're back in the air with their sole jet aircraft still on the ground. Good for them. They, they are flying again with a wet lease. Good for them. This was an interesting one that I was kind of surprised by. Aer Lingus is bringing back their a pair of so they had five in the fleet, three were leased, two were owned outright. They're bringing back the two A330 200s that they own. So that's EI Duo and EI Da D A A are both coming back. And this talking about this just jogged my memory about the goofy thing that happened a few weeks ago now that I don't think we talked about too much, but where there was some weird Wikipedia article edited to say that Delta or was it Delta was picking up all of the ex-American A330s? Oh, geez. Yeah. So it was just like a goofy thing. Maybe Aer Lingus wants to- Yeah, this one's real. And maybe Aer Lingus wants to pick those up. Yeah. Because they are 200s. Yeah, these aircraft in Aer Lingus's fleet, they were always kind of the oddball runt. They have a good number of A330 300s, and these 200s were just kind of there, occasionally grounded, occasionally put back into service. They were grounded, looks like mid or late 2020, very yeah. expectedly. Yeah. So surprising to see them put back into service. But yeah, maybe we should go update and not put any sourcing, any reference into Aer Lingus's Wikipedia page <laughs> saying, yeah, they've taken all of Americans' old A330s, which actually would be a much newer aircraft than these A330 200s at Aer Lingus. These are not new aircraft. EIDAA is a healthy 22 years old, while EIDUO is just about 16 years old. And they have E-I-G-E-Y is also just about 22 years old. So these are not new aircraft. So when these were grounded, I thought they, these were gone for good, but apparently there's a little bit of life left in them. 
I mean, they own them. Why not fly them? Yep. As long as they're airworthy, they might as well make some money. There you go. And finally, we've talked over the last couple of weeks about the new Flight Radar 24 open beta. If you haven't checked that out, go do so. Flightradar24.com slash open beta. It's available on web only right now, but all of the features that are available will eventually be coming to the apps in future releases. And this week we released a new feature in the filters that I've wanted for a really long time personally. And I'm really excited that we made it work and we were able to release it. It's a new routes filter. So before when you filtered two airports, say you filtered Chicago O'Hare out and JFK in, you were getting all of the flights leaving Chicago and all of the flights coming into JFK. With the new routes filter, now you get just the flights that are going in between the two airports. That's and nice. you can filter with multiple airports on both the from and to side. So you can do all Chicago airports to all New York airports and see what's there. And the cool thing, at least as far as I'm concerned, is that you can also filter like you can with the airport filters now on country. So you can see all of the flights coming from the US to the UK, everything going from Japan to Australia. And if you create multiple filters, you can do some fun things looking at kind of the density of domestic traffic around the world. That's something that I've been having a little fun with lately. So if you haven't checked out the new beta version of the Flight Radar 24 website, you should go do that because, I mean, I know I'm biased. But it's really good. And I'm really, really proud of all of the work that our product folks and our developer folks and our design folks have been working on and tolerating a ton of internal feedback from me and others the most as well as kind of feedback. Yes, all of the great feedback we've gotten from our users so far that's already made the site so much better just from having beta testers. So really appreciate that from everyone who's checked it out. And if you haven't checked it out, go do so. So Jason, that's episode 211. That was a good one. All right. If you liked episode 211, or if you didn't, why don't you head over to wherever you listen to your podcast and leave us a rating or a review. It definitely helps other people find the podcast. It's a big push and we really appreciate having your feedback as well. If you want to talk to us about something or if you have a suggestion for a future episode or a topic, email us at podcast at fr24.com and we look forward to hearing from you. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.